This is an ABC podcast. Eid Mubarak, everyone. Welcome to The Minefield. It's a show about negotiating the moral and ethical dilemmas of modern life. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. I began with that greeting for a not insignificant reason, Scott, and that is that it kind of signals that we're at the end of the Ramadan series because Ramadan is, well, really no more. Uh, it's, it's just wound up, which is fantastic news for my stomach uh, <laughs> and perhaps the stomachs of many others, but also means that we look back upon the Ramadan series rather than mm. than being immersed in it so much today, don't we? We do, and we're doing something kind of sneaky because, I mean, in the past, with the exception of one year, we've tried to limit our Ramadan series to four episodes, to four particular practices or virtues or vices or needs of the soul, I think we did a couple of years ago. Um, There was one year where uh, where we snuck in a fifth episode. Uh, It was part of our series on unfashionable virtues. Uh, and that we was did a, a fun series, by the way. That was a, that I was a wonderful that series. I really yeah. enjoyed that. Um, uh, and we snuck in a fifth on humility, uh, which was a particularly good one. If our listeners want to go back and, and listen, we're kind of doing something similar today. We're not quite wrapping up the Ramadan series, but we are actually wrap, wrapping up the Ramadan series because we're not really dealing here with the practice that we've neglected, and we do so to our detriment because of the extent to which these practices cultivate part of the conditions of the moral life. But because in some, to, to some extent, we're dealing with the aftermath of the cultivation of those practices. Let me, let me try to put it to you this way, Waleed, and then you can tell me where you want to kind of take it from here. Mm. The, the, it seems to me that there are, I mean, there are many ways of thinking about moral philosophy and the cultivation of the moral life those moments where the moral life manifests itself, where particular demands are placed upon it. There are many ways of thinking about it, but for our purposes, I think there are probably two nice ways of dividing it. There are those who think about morality and moral decision-making as being what one is called to do at high moments of decision or at moments where big hot-button issues come to the fore and we need to say something intelligent or intelligible about it. So this would almost be the moral life as moments of decision. What do I do when? What, how should one respond if? Okay, mm-hmm. uh, And there are a whole lot of moral theories, quite bad ones like utilitarianism, quite good ones uh, like, um, like, say, uh, Kantian deontology. Uh, there are ways that kind of that try to skew the differences a little bit, like virtue ethics. I don't think it quite fits into that, into that side of the, of the division, but, you know, there you have it. There are other ways of thinking about the moral life that essentially proceed under the rubric that one is never not a moral agent that the demands on our moral attention are persistent. They are persistent in everyday conversation. Uh, Iris Murdoch had this lovely understated little remark where she said everyday conversation is not necessarily a morally neutral activity. I actually love that. If I were to get a tattoo, Mm. it would be that. It would be a fairly long one because it's actually quite a large sentence. Um, (laughs) But but that that is such an important observation, by the way. Isn't it? Go on. Should we do a show on that? Hmm. There's so many threads to pull on there and I don't know how to do it and make it an aside within a show (laughs) rather than a show. But like, we overlook sometimes the moral gravity of what we're doing because it's just routine and we think nothing of it. That's right. 
Um, well, you know, gossip came up a little bit in yep. which show was it? Not knowing. In the uh, yes, second right. in the the Ramadan series we did. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be an example of that, whereby we can actually be doing some serious damage to people, but because it's just everyday conversation, we sort of pay it no heed, really. Yes, and that's I, d- exactly I don't know right. if that's what she's getting at, but that's what started chiming in my mind was that you know, look, the, uh, the, these are all moral acts. I think that's an extension of what she's getting at. The particular remark that she makes, though, and this is one of the reasons that I love it, is it's part of her argument that adjectives are the most moral part of speech. Right. That the adjectives that we come to use concerning other people shape our vision of those people. The better and truer and more just and more loving adjectives we use about them, those adjectives then change, transform our moral vision. Mm. So that the way that one, the adjective that one uses to describe, and here's where it would intersect with gossip, the adjective one uses to describe someone who is not present in the conversation has a moral effect both on the way in which I come to see them and on the way in which the person I'm in conversation mm. yeah, yeah. comes to see them. So, I mean, that, that, that idea that moral agency flows through seemingly inconsequential, seemingly non-public communication, that I think is, I think you're right. It is incredibly important. But then there's also, you know, part of that same tradition. There aren't many people who would bring Iris Murdoch and Ralph Waldo Emerson into the same <laughs> breath. But, you know, Emerson also said uh, that men imagine, there's a quote, men imagine they communicate their virtue and vice only by overt actions. They do not see that virtue and vice emit a breath at every moment. In other words, who I am, what I value, what I disregard, what I disdain, what I find excellent, what I find unworthy, these things are being communicated by every word I speak. So, and, and I, I think you could put other great moral philosophers in the same tradition. I would put, say, Stanley Cavell and Cora Diamond, our own Raymond Gaeta, certainly Simone Weil. These would all have something, I think, very important to say about one of the registers of the moral life being the extent to which we are exposed to moral demands on our attention constantly. That has an effect, though, Willie, doesn't it? And, and you, you raised this, I think, quite pointedly when we talked about responsibility and complicity and guilt in our conversation earlier this year with Daniel Selemeyer, that when moral obligation, when a, when a certain demand to respond to claims on our moral attentiveness are persistent, when we never escape them, when we only have to be, quote unquote, moral agents at moments of high decision, I mean, there is a word for the outcome of that. And that is a certain fatigue that comes as the result of the relentlessness of the demands of the moral. Or if we just sort of twisted it slightly, there's also an experience of, if I can put it this way, being overwhelmed by the too muchness of the injustice of the world, the too muchness of the cruelty that there is to address. Um, And if one really lives with that sense of the too muchness of what there is to do, to address, to reckon with, to take seriously, to to, to try to kind of exercise some morally meaningful agency about, that also can give rise 
to a profound feeling of, I think, what can only be described as almost a spiritual weariness. Some people refer to it as compassion fatigue. That seems very light to me. I think, I think soul-deep tiredness. What is one to do? What can I do? The world is just too much. These are, these are real phenomena. Um, and, and it's a morally significant one that came up at the end of our first show in the Ramadan series with our guest in that series, uh, where, where Rebecca Roselle Stone raised the issue of fatigue as something that really does require, that almost goes as a counterpart to moral attentiveness. And at that time, we thought, you know, we've really got to do something about that. And so I think we both felt that this series couldn't really come to an end unless we circled back around and did something about the problem or the experience of fatigue. So we're calling this an epilogue, are we? An epilogue, yeah. yeah. The right. aftermath, the aftermath. Let's yeah. do that. I think the, right. the, the implications of the fatigue point are interesting to me because I think there is something important in recognising that if you set up moral requirements a particular way such that they are unrealisable, Hmm. Right. Then it seems to me you've got something wrong. Yep, that, that's right. So, it, did we have this sort of conversation? I feel like I had an exchange like this that never quite got fulfilled with Daniel Salamai or something. But like this idea where if if you place moral demands that make life unlivable, then the moral demands must be misconceived somehow. Mm-hmm. There must be some other element to it. And, and I think the fatigue thing is interesting in that regard because on the one hand, you could plausibly argue that the state of the world, and I would say this is probably true at any time in history, the state of the world is such that it is so riven with problems, with injustice and so on, that a, a moral response would demand a sort of perpetual um, if not anger, then at least concern. Mm. But on the other hand, that that is just ultimately annihilating, um, that that's unrealizable, and that therefore there must be better moral responses to that. Than, well, it, does, it, does it change if you don't think about it at the level of the world? Mm. But, I mean, don't the conditions, say, of the social contract, which we actually t- haven't talked a lot about on this show. I think that's something we've got to rectify. But do the conditions of the social contract where we each, in a very real way, contribute our voice uh, in a form of consent to the way things are in the society around us, and that forms of withdrawal of our consent uh, need to be backed up with forms of moral action that are sort of deliberate, democratic, intentional – does does the too muchness of the injustice of society immediately around us does that does that change your calculus there i mean you're right that the world is just too much but even the injustice as it presents itself immediately to us is it is it still does that still beset by the same problem of too muchness yeah it might be i don't i don't know i mean i think this gets complicated because you then need to get into a discussion about what constitutes injustice. Hmm. And I think one of the problems, and I think this is particularly true in academia now, is that there's a, there's a certain academic fashion which is devoted to discovering layer upon layer of injustice such that 
things that people were not necessarily even experiencing as injustice become reframed as injustice and then, you know, and then it becomes impossible to respond to anything. Um, so I, I would have to, I, I think that that caveat has to be there, mm. right? Mm. But nonetheless, um, even without that phenomenon, I think it, it's a rare society that doesn't have such levels of injustice that they're ultimately fatiguing. Right? If you were if you were to commit your moral energy to them in the way that I think a lot of people might find intuitive, if you were to reason it out on a piece of paper, it becomes unsurvivable. Hmm. Unless your approach, and maybe this is, is the approach, is to say, I take the world as it exists. But what I then seek to do is figure out what action I'm called to, and then I commit cheerfully to that action. And I don't overly invest my emotional energy in the outcome of all of that. Like I, I accept my, my inability to change the world, um, the limitations of my capacity. I accept injustice, if we're going to use that as the, the focus. Um, I accept injustice as, an, as a social fact in the Durkheimian sense, right? That mm. it's... It exists and it will continue to exist and nothing you do will mean that it doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a contribution to make and it doesn't mean that you don't have work to do. And where you're committing to the work rather than to the outcome, um, I think that changes the whole calculation. Interesting. I find that so interesting. And I don't know if I completely agree well, hang on, hang on. No, I think, I think you're right up to a particular point uh, that I think regarding certain forms of injustice as a social fact, uh, as part of one's lived experience, um, I well, think... Uh, what I, think, what I mean is just the, the fact of injustice. Yes, yes, that, that, that one cannot come into or get out of the world clean. Let's just put it that but way. But also that, that no, one, no one ever will encounter a world without it. Okay. Okay. Here's, here's C- what Certain injustices might go. Hmm. Other ones might rise. They might go as a result of work that you're doing. I, I'm not saying everything is static. I'm just saying that the fact of injustice, like the idea of I, I will be enraged until there is no injustice in the world means you will just be enraged. Yes. Okay. Look, I think that's absolutely right. And I think there is something hysterical bordering on immoral about inducing people or saying that people have an obligation to live in conditions of perpetual enragement or perpetual outrage and anger at the way things are. I do worry sometimes. Uh, while, while I do regard a, a kind of willful ignorance or a sleepiness uh, or a desire to be forgetful of the things that we really ought to be always calling to mind. Whereas I regard that tendency many times, almost you know, giving oneself over to 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 cultural anesthetics to sort of forget about the way things are. Um, I regard that as vicious. At the same time, though, I think one of the casualties of quote unquote wokeness is 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 that this condition of perpetual outragedness. Um, there is something, I think, morally crippling ultimately about it. Here's my question, though, and this may well, 
I, I can't believe how many times we end up coming back to the issue of intention versus outcome. I think laboring to a particular point, recognizing that all I'm responsible for is my effort, not the outcome. I do think there is one step beyond that, however, that doesn't simply tip over into a condition of kind of constant impotent outrage. Um, you raised Durkheim. Let me raise you Durkheim with my J.M. Kutzia. His, his novel, Elizabeth Costello, um, had an earth-shattering, life-changing effect on me on all sorts of different levels. The, the, the eponymous character of the novel, Elizabeth Costello, is an um, Australian novelist who is invited by a North American university to come and to deliver an address in her honor. And she does the address on what she calls the unrelenting cruelty of our treatment of non-human animals. Um, it's, not, it's not a plea for vegetarianism, but it is an extended lament on our conditions of ongoing food factories, essentially. And at one point, one of the questioners, I think it might even be the principal of the, or the, the president of the university, kind of congratulates her on, on vegetarianism as a very admirable moral stance. And she protests against that by saying that it, for her, it's not a moral stance. It's an attempt to save her soul. There's no alternative for her knowing what she does about this ongoing system of degradation to our fellow creatures. And that this, this is a kind of, for her, it's, a, it's not really a protest. It's an attempt to live in circumstances that she finds intolerable, that she finds too much. But then at one point, and this is, this is, I'm trying to get to my point. At one point, she says, I also wouldn't have too much admiration for me. She says, after all, I'm wearing leather shoes and carrying a leather purse. And I think there is something about that admission that it's not only, I can only do too much. I, I can only do so much. And then after that, the consequences are beyond me or out of my control. At what point, Waleed, does one live with a sense of, the, of a, the lived reality of one's impurity in the world or a lived reality of one's dirty hands, that one is always perpetually making compromises? And the recognition of those compromises are meant to act almost like a thorn in our side, a constant reminder that, yes, there is only so much that we can do, but no, one should never resign oneself purely to that fact. What's the question exactly? That to what extent should we be comfortable with those compromises? Uh, to what extent, the way that you sketched out the alternative... Yeah. So either one lives in a position in a, in a condition of outrage at perpetual injustice, or one simply says, "This is all I can do, and the outcomes are not my responsibility or are not really my concern." Mm. I think there is the affective dimension of the way in which one experiences one's compromises with the injustice of the world, that while not perhaps raising to the level of perpetual outrage, nonetheless has the status of a moral affect, the recognition that I am compromised, that what I do is all too accommodating of certain compromises with injustice, and that that 
fact never permits me to simply sink back down into a state of all too relaxed comfort with re with the injustices of the world. Yeah. Was... You don't like I, it? No, I don't mind it. I, I, I just, I guess I'm trying to figure out how you could say that it's anything other than obvious, really, if you know what I mean. So I don't mean that as a criticism of what you say. I just mean that that's the inevitable finishing point, isn't it? Like, where else could you finish up? You could finish up with, I am a really, really good person for 95% of my month with most of my actions. Mm. And then that buys me 5% of willful, indulgent compromise where I don't have to be thinking about the consequences of my actions. So, for instance, I might be really, really good in terms of not eating animal flesh or animal products, but that one day a month I'm going to give myself over to a naughty day where I feast on a triple-layered, you know, <laughs> something. Or, or you know, I'm, I'm really good for most of the time and that buys me a clean conscience. Or, or even maybe I'm really good for a little bit of the time and that buys me enough of a clean conscience with everything else that I do. It's, it's, those, it's those little self-justifying compromises that we make in order to give ourselves a free pass so that we don't have to think about what we do much the same way as we think about the demands of the moral life in everyday Sure. So we're always works in progress. And the moment we can put everything down and say we're finished, then we are. Or I'm taking a break. Or I'm taking a much-needed break from, from attendance to the demands of the moral life. Yeah. But this is where we come back to the point I made at the start, whereas, which is if what you've constructed is something such that the only way to survive through it is to have breaks, then I think we have to question what you've constructed. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just not sure I can subscribe to a moral scheme that is just too exhausting to live up to. Interesting. I, I can subscribe to one that you'll fail trying to reach, but not one that's like, I just have to give myself time out every now and again from it. Effectively have a, you know, morality-free zone for a weekend or a week or a month or whatever. I, th I think that's a sign that it's not working. But I don't know that I can take it further than that, that's, mm. uh, which I think you're asking me to do, but I, maybe I just have to disappoint you. Mm. You never disappoint me, Willie. Yeah, that's what you say when, when yeah. I have. Um, <laughs> this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, or you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. All right, Scott, is this the shortest time between repeat No, it's not. I knew you were going to ask that. No, we began this year playing a repeat of a conversation we had. No, that doesn't had. count. A repeat doesn't. You can't do a repeat. And I mean, well, okay. I mean original right. appearances. An original appearance? Okay, yes, this is absolutely the shortest time frame between times that a guest has come back on the show, yes. It's a good effort by the guest because what she's effectively done is lay the groundwork for her. It's repeat <laughs> it's <true>. business. <laughs> it's true. She's very, very clever. 
All right. Without any further ado, or without any further suspense, Rebecca Rose Elstone, who I mentioned earlier in the show, she joined us, of course, for our episode, uh, our first episode in this series on neglected practices on attentiveness. She is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota. She's the co-author of a wonderful book on Simone Weil called Simone Weil and Theology. She's the editor of an equally fine book called Simone Weil and Continental Philosophy. The reason I bring that book up is because she also has a chapter in that book on Simone Weil and the problem of fatigue. Rebecca, thank you so much for dropping the fatigue bomb at the end of the last time we had you on the show and then being willing to take up the invitation to come back and justify yourself. Of course. I am so happy to be uh, invited back and to be a participant. And I guess this is the aftermath episode, as you called That's it, right. but um, an answer for all the problems I set up. Yeah, I, I think we can't not talk about fatigue now that we've introduced all the issues with moral attentiveness to the world. And just listening to your conversation, I, I had so many thoughts going through my head about, you know, the attempt to be pure in this really complex, interwoven, you know, world that we live in now, where we have the 24-hour news cycle, of course, we're constantly learning about new issues coming up on the local, regional, national, international level. Um, and I have to just make a mention of a great book um, by Alexis Shotwell. I kept hearing this in the background. She has a book called Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times. Mm. Um, and it's just such a perfect answer, I think, to a lot of these questions because, yeah, it's not about, as you said, you know, having naughty days or a get-out-of-jail-free card or having clean conscience in the end. But you know, she suggests that we're interwoven with this very complex world where we're always already complicit. You know, we consume just by virtue of being human, being alive. Um, and so it's not about taking a moral holiday, but really just sort of wrestling with how do we continually extend our moral attention, but yeah, in ways that are sustainable. And that's that's the big question, because I think it's Waleed who said it can be absolutely annihilating right, to try and keep up. I mean, it's it's overwhelming. So I guess that's what we're talking about today is, is how, how to do that. Well, look, and I think you've actually just laid out the groundwork of what we need to discuss quite beautifully. I guess the additional element, though, that you didn't include in that is that one of the things that our practices of consumption now hold out to us are ways of further consuming of living our lives in ways that don't seem interrupted by any kind of reflection on what it is that we do and the broader consequences of what happens when we do it, but that give us, if you like, ethical or quasi or pseudo-ethical products to consume in the course of our daily lives, that then do that little bit to assuage our consciences, that kind of keep the conscience half awake, but maybe only just half awake. And as long as we keep on going with these forms of quasi-ethical consumption, then the problems of our complicity in the injustices of the world stay just below the level of consciousness. They're kind of half there, but they never really erupt into what Elizabeth Costello describes as being a conditioned, uh, being in a condition of raw nerves. Mm -hmm. 
Right. That kind of ethical consumerism, I guess it's been called, is it's a nice salve, isn't it? I mean, it it helps us to assure ourselves that we're good and and you know moral people and that there are no things that we really need to think too hard or long about um you know buying the right products i'm you know investing in the right companies or whatever and that's not really the attitude i guess that i would want to to recommend or to extol as being one that's that's truly morally attentive i mean it might be some small part of it. I don't want to deny that there's some value to be had in looking at the principles behind, you know, the the products that we're buying or the companies that we're supporting that can be important. And we understand for instance how boycott can be a really powerful tool to hold individuals or you know corporations um, in, to to responsibility. But that can I think become a very facile sometimes way too easy way out of of what's a genuinely moral sort of vigilant orientation that's more holistic, I guess. Um, so I, I don't know if it would help to to outline what some of the, I think, variants of moral fatigue are, because I don't think there's just yeah. one type. No, that's right. You know, when I think about moral fatigue, right, certainly compassion fatigue, as you mentioned, is a big part of that. And, you know, we understand that as someone, usually, you know, care workers, right, who have a kind of attunement to the suffering of others, whether that's animals or human beings. Um, and so we think about the kind of fatigue that results from that care as being like a necessary wound, Right. So it goes hand in hand with those kind of caring occupations or even if it's not an occupation. Right. We're just we're invested in um, causes or we care about people in the world. And so what comes from that, that kind of moral attentiveness is this kind of spiritual or, you know, um, care fatigue. So that's certainly one part of it. But I think there's also something I've been experiencing a lot lately, uh, and I don't know if I have a good name for it, something like absurdity or illogic fatigue um, <laughs> could also be called maybe stupidity fatigue, which maybe <laughs> is, is not the nicest way to put it. But where we encounter banality in the world that is, and it's moral because, of course, that kind of banality or unreasonableness or illogic from people is devastating to the planet and to to human beings. Um, and so to continually bump our heads against that kind of wall, right, to hear, for instance, some of the responses um, that people are giving for not taking the COVID vaccine, right? It's just maddening. It's like, you know, how how can we get beyond this? And just contemplating that kind of lack of understanding can be fatiguing in itself. And then I also think there's a third type um, that I, for lack of a better term, call positivity fatigue. And I think this results from some of our neoliberal structures in, in the late capitalist world where we have, you know, constant opportunities to expand, to be more and more productive, um, even sometimes to be happier, um, live better, more blessed lives, what have you. And this kind of constant emphasis on hyper-productivity these sort of imperatives, of course, are suffocating for, I would say, 99% of the world because we're most of us working to maintain some kind of illusions of ease and limitlessness for the 1%. 
but this is this is a kind of fatigue too though that a lot of people don't even realize that they have because it is so wrapped up in an ideology of you can do more, you can be more, you can be happy. It's about self-transformation. It's about taking initiative. Um, again, sort of endless opportunities to expand yourself. And so I think a lot of times people don't realize that they're fatigued until they snap. But I, I see that as a, a growing kind of fatigue that also, again, for me, is a sort of moral fatigue because mm. it's isolating. Why, why is that a moral fatigue, though? It seems like that's a fatigue born of, I don't know, something that's amoral, really. Well, I, I think it's in the moral territory because what it effectively is doing is it's it's kind of a privatization, right? It's about focusing on self-advancement, but to the detriment of solidarity with others, right? Or to the detriment of social goods, the common good, right? It's this emphasis on don't you as an individual want to move up in your career? Don't you want to keep striving? Um, or don't you want to embody this very narrow form of happiness? And again, those kind of imperatives can be absolutely detrimental um, and constrictive to, to most people. And so that's why I think there's a moral quality about it because it's it's negligent, right? That kind of um, imperative. It's It's... It ostracizes, it marginalizes so many people who cannot, uh, and most of us could not keep up with those demands anyway. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just not sure. I mean, I don't know. Look, it's a, it's a minor point. I don't know it matters that much. But it's just that it seems to me the fatigue there isn't so much moral. It might have moral consequences. We might be able to understand it in moral terms. Mm. But the fatigue there comes from a a failure to realize a false promise, which is not a moral promise so much. Well, yeah, un unless though, Waleed, I mean, I, I know what you're saying, and I think I probably agree with it. It does reflect, however, and this probably goes to Rebecca's point, and this kind of intersects with what we discussed a couple weeks ago on fasting, that the cultivation of the self and the attendance to the self have probably reached in our time something like the level of a moral obligation, where one's responsibility to be one's best version of oneself and to then show other people that one is the best version of to promote the hell out of it, that, that that probably does function these days as something like almost a categorical imperative. Yeah, I see that, so as, if, I see that as evidence of amorality, though. Yes, yes, but it's probably not thought of in terms of amorality. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. So can I just add or pick up one other idea? As we were talking about ethical consumption, for example, it, it sort of made me wonder about these sort of fatigues, where they sit and the assumptions, that the, the moral assumptions they sort of make. So I, I'm not for a moment saying ethical consumption isn't important, but... A focus on ethical consumption seems to uh, obscure a bigger moral question, which might help with the fatigue, if you like, about how much am I focusing on consumption in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you speak endlessly about ethical consumption, you are making an assumption that the lives of people 
should be focused on consumption. Now, I know mm, that's, that's a right. very rough yeah. description because, you know, there's a version of this that doesn't do that at all. Like, I, I get all that. But, but it seems like the starting point is, well, you're a consumer and you want to consume as much as possible. How can you do that ethically? Rather than asking more fundamental or, or formative moral questions about what's our attitude to consumption at all? To what extent do we want to define our lives by that? Why, do we need to find an ethical way to consume everything? Or are we better off just not consuming a whole bunch of stuff? And not right. just for environmental reasons or whatever, but for our own spiritual reasons, our own moral well-being, our own, our own moral formation. And, and so sometimes I wonder whether or not the moral fatigue that we might feel arises not just from the overwhelming moral problems that we're dealing with, but that from, from, from the, the solutions themselves. <laughs> well, or for, yeah, yeah. But also from the possibility that we might be asking the wrong moral questions. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. And I think there's also, of course, with ethical consumption, an assumption of privilege, right? That mm. um, many of these products that are deemed more ethical, um, or maybe they are more ethical, but they, they're often more expensive. Um, they're only available to, to a few people who can afford them. So there's that problem too. Mm. But that actually connects with something that I guess I, I wasn't articulating as well as I could have with the positivity fatigue, but there's an economic structure behind that, right? Which is focused on consumerism, capitalism, and this kind of neoliberal economics is also about sort of this sped up processes and having less time. So produce more with fewer resources and with less time. And then how does that then impact our ability to do other things than consume like care for people, right? Care for aging parents or, you know, our pets who need us or whatever it might be. Um, we start sort of chopping up all of those very human and essential parts of our lives into these little discrete bits and scheduling them very tightly in between, you know, when we need to, you know, work on the next big project constantly. So I think it absolutely, that kind of economics has an impact on our ability to care and to attend, um, mm. which is why I included it in that moral category, I guess. But I think that brings um, us to, to – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Please. Sorry. Go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah. No, I think uh, we can talk about this later, but responses to fatigue then, right? Yes. What do we do about exactly. this? <laughs> That's exactly the point. I'll take that as my moment to intervene. If you just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. More importantly, the name of our guest is Rebecca Roselle Stone, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota. Okay, so so this actually brings us, I think, to a really important point, Rebecca. That you've kind of flagged at a number of a number of junctures in our discussion. So so if we then move from, if you like, the phenomenology of fatigue, the experience of fatigue, and I think we can probably say that there are better forms of fatigue and there are worse forms of fatigue, which you've already mentioned. So simply being across or feeling as though one is obligated to be across too much and the kind of you know, exhaustion that comes out of constantly being assaulted by the injustice, by the fact of the injustice of the world, uh, or, or, or the, the work conditions under which we live for whatever reasons, either good or bad, neoliberal or academic. 
But then there is the fatigue that comes from the life of genuine moral attentiveness. Giving oneself to something that I believe I have a peculiar, a particular obligation to attend to and to which I want to really devote or orient aspects of my life in a deliberate, in an intentional way. The question then is, how do we respond to our fatigue? Because it seems to me that there are good ways of responding. (laughs) There are atrocious ways of responding. So one might get to the end of a workday during which one feels that one has been absolutely abused in terms of the way that your time, every last ounce of productivity has been wrung out of you, that your relationships with your workmates uh, have been have been toxic because you've been placed against one another and actively disincentivized from cooperating or collaborating with, with one another. It might be that what I want to do at the end of a day like that, when I'm overwhelmed by the fatigue of those sorts of, envi- those sorts of work conditions, what I want to do is a form of mindless consumption. I want to fill the void by just shoving something in my mouth or indulging in something that is pointless, that is worthless, that might make me feel sort of temporarily, that might give me a temporary respite, but in fact, it does nothing truly to alleviate the fatigue. It's almost more like an anesthetic than it is a cure. So it seems to me that at each one of these points, there are good responses, the responses that acknowledge the reality of the, of the fatigue. And there are other forms of kind of mindlessness or kind of self-induced temporary respite that really do nothing at all to address the underlying, uh, the underlying fact of the fatigue in the first place. Yes, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of responses ranging from, we might say, you know, bad to to much better. And on the far end of the bad would be something like you said, escapism, where, you know, we take a piece of, uh, you know, mind candy, whatever it might be, um, that can occasionally be fine and always is fun, but it doesn't really nourish us long term, right? It, it ends up being really a kind of immediate salve, but just to enable us to get back to work quickly without any kind of, again, real long-term solution there. It's just a quick filling of the void. Something that's... Or even... Sorry, Becky, can I just come in just at at that point? Sure. I don't think think those are the only two alternatives, though. It's not just kind of filling us up with what we need most immediately so we can get back to it or giving us that kind of temporary respite versus solving things in the long term. I think the other option, though, that could be a proper response to fatigue is doing something that, in fact, nourishes us in the meantime. So a form of respite, yes, but a form of respite that really does attend to the deeper need. It need not be entirely oriented towards some long-term solution, but it might be something like, really filling up the, you know, what do we want to refer to it as, you know, the spiritual void or really filling up what my true need is rather than simply papering over it. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, I mean, on the other end, it could be something like a recreation, a recreation, right? That's more like a reorientation of our attention. So it's not a complete withdrawal of attention from the phenomenon that has been demanding it throughout the day, but it's just turning it towards, for instance, you know, a a piece of music or some other kind of art that really helps to replenish us, but not in a way that's, um, 
that means that we have somehow banished our consciousness <laughs> to the nether worlds, right? Mm. Um, or it doesn't mean we've abdicated some kind of responsibility, but there's something that's more uh, sustaining about this recreation. Um, there's also another response too, which we get a lot in workplaces, um, especially for caregivers, which is how to strengthen your resilience to fatigue. And of course, resilience is an important capacity for human survival, and it necessarily helps us to transform unjust structures, of course, but it also has become a kind of technique of, I'll say mm. again, neoliberal power. Um, Sarah Ahmed said something that really struck me in, in her book, uh, Living a Feminist Life. She said, sometimes this requirement to take more pressure is so that pressure can be gradually increased, right? And that's what resilience is. So take more, take more, become stronger so you can take more. Um, and all that really is, is about adjusting to the oppressive conditions in some cases. So, you know, I've, I've become a little bit wary of resilience trainings, but something that's truly recreative for the soul, that's what I'm interested in, in figuring out. I just wonder whether or not Virtue ethics has anything to contribute here. And Scott, I feel like you should have lots of views on this. But do you remember, what was it, a couple of years ago we did a show about, it was after I got back from India, remember, and we did a show yes. about what do you do with the sort of endless demands for money from beggars on the yes. street and a place like that. Yep. That sort of thing. And the idea sort of came up in that, that we might be asking the wrong question, like, you know, how do I respond to this? Rather, we should say, do I want to be a generous person? And if I want to be a generous person, then the way to be a generous person is to act like a generous person, <laughs> like to force yourself effectively to cultivate the habits of a generous person. And then you become that. And then instead of having to figure out how you're going to respond to everything, you just, it, it sort of emanates from you. And I wonder whether or not there's something in that about th that, that has something to say here, Rebecca, because mm -hmm. it seems to me this might be, I, I mean, you know, maybe this is somewhere, something that belongs earlier in this episode, but it might be a way around the fatigue element of it, right? It, it, you don't get fatigued if you're behaving in accordance with your disposition. You get fatigued because you're constantly struggling with yourself or with something. And I wonder if, if we're respond, so it sort of comes to the question of how we respond to fatigue. If we are taking moments of fatigue to figure out, like if we want moments of relief from that, but we are spending that time in some way that is cultivating a kind of ethic, then is that the way of building resilience? Do you know what I mean? Do, I mean, do we, we end up creating a version of ourselves that just has a bit more of a frictionless response to these sort of endless moral demands? I mean, I think that absolutely attention is about a kind of, I mean, when we are becoming attentive, we're cultivating that kind of disposition or orientation to the world. I just don't think that it can go without fatigue. I think that's part and parcel of that moral orientation or attitude. Mm -hmm. Um because of frictionless existence with the world, what would that mean, right? Like where I'm not bumping up against anything, everything is just experientially smooth for me. 
it seems like that would be a sign of a kind of detachment from the world or privilege or somehow that I'm I'm keeping things at bay. Or a, or a kind of just moral certainty. I, I know these things are there and I know how to respond. It, it's not I'm that a, they're not confronting. It's not, it's not necessarily an expression of privilege. It, it, it's just an expression of a kind of um, clarity, I suppose. Hmm. There, is, there, there is something else, though, and I'm not sure if this really pertains on what we're talking about, but it seems to me to be an unavoidable sideline to what Waleed mentioned before. And that's that if we feel this unbearable tension, and it seems to me that certainly in terms of the moral life, this is fatigue-inducing. If we feel this unbearable tension between what I believe I ought to do and what I, in fact, really, really want to do. So at the end of the day, I know that in order to keep filling up my moral capacities and to nurture my moral life, I know I should probably pick up a volume of Tolstoy's short stories just to, you know, relax with a cup of chamomile tea. What I really want to do is, you know, and at my sort of lower brain moments, I might just sort of want to indulge in reruns of Friends or Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> oh, you can't say both. I can't say both. I know I, that, that that Seinfeld reference was just for you, Waleed. Or uh, if I'm really, on, what? if I'm really feeling yucky, if I really oh, wow. am just feeling dirty, I might just want to whack on uh, Game of Thrones or, or or something like that. In other words, <laughs> there's this kind of uh, which I've never anyway. Um, so so there might be this kind of tension. So this is what I really probably should do if I'm really being the person that I think I should be. But this is what I really want, and I think that tension between who I am and what I want without without deliberately attending to the practices whereby what I want is, in fact, what really nourishes me. Um, I'm wondering if that isn't a kind of dimension to what we're talking about here, or what we try to do to unwind in order to alleviate the fatigue is probably what we really want, but what we've left unaddressed is what we really want. Yeah. Well, it's something that I think John Stuart Mill said, you know, these these little shallow pleasures, the things that you're characterizing is what we really want. You know, they're they're fine on occasion, but the problem is they can become really addictive. And so we have to be careful in indulging in them. And I guess the other question is how do we reorient our desires to, right? Like mm-hmm. if that's what I really want right now is to drink a whole bottle of wine and watch, you know, Game of Thrones from start to finish. How do I shift that desire to reading Tolstoy? And how do I, you know how do we start cultivating pleasures in different kind of ways? I mean, I think that also is a question of attentiveness. How do we expand ourselves to start finding pleasure in in more things in the world? And that's not an easy quest um, because clearly there are some things that are. I think we we want to just turn off the brain at times. Mm. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> no, and it's um, not bad that things that facilitate that exist either. It, no, it's, that's right. It's right. just bad right. when those things dominate or predominate. That's the Aldous Huxley problem, Scott. Yes, it is. That's right. But, but look, I, again, let's just go back to the fact that there are grades in this. I mean, times of genuine peace, of respite. I mean, we all, we all, we all experience it. And I don't think we should beat ourselves up over that. But I think gradually recognizing 
that what addresses us, what fills us, what nurtures us at those moments of real exhaustion, whatever that exhaustion stems from, um, there are ways of addressing that, of attending to it that are better than others. So just in case our listeners think that the only two options are Game <laughs> of Thrones or, or, or Tolstoy, I mean, for, for God's sake, one of the most wonderful programs I've watched in the last three years is Ted Lasso, <laughs> which, is, which is a masterclass in many respects of moral attentiveness and cultivation of genuine forms of goodness and virtue. So I don't think that the options are as stark as doing something cerebral versus doing something gratuitous. Um, it's gradually, I think, bringing back the needs of the soul in line with what it is that we, in fact, really kind of long for at those moments of genuine tiredness and fatigue. Right. And I was going to say it, it doesn't have to be an either or. Right. I mean, so no. there are a lot of comedies like, the, you know, when you mentioned I love Curb Your Enthusiasm or What We Do in the Shadows. But these really clever comedies can be ways of making the world more clear to us. Sometimes they can magnify problems or political satires do this and simultaneously reducing the power that these tragedies seem to have over us. So, I mean, there can be a lot accomplished in, in the seemingly light, you know, especially I think in comedies. What I love about this is this could easily devolve just into a show where we just throw out comedies and get ever sillier <laughs> with them and see how far we're prepared to go. Anyone for Naked Gun? Is anyone prepared to go for Naked Gun? <laughs> Sorry, bud, you lost me there. Really? You know, I, you know what? No, we're out of time. I was going to talk about. It. I actually watched it recently after years and years and years because when I was a kid, it was the greatest thing in the world. It doesn't quite stand up, but it, it was still deliciously stupid. Uh, deliciously stupid is not what Rebecca Roselle Stone is, but she is our guest for this week's edition of the Minefield. Alas, we are at an end. Rebecca, thank you very much for your return appearance. Um, if anyone was going to come back and do it, we're indebted to you for being that person. So thank you so much for doing it. Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. Rebecca is our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Scott, we are done. Um, good to see you and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.